Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Sovereign Sire. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, um, a sunset. But uh, this was the sunset of dicks. That and more. But before that, I want to let you know, you know, you can go to adamandeve.com and get 50% off of just about any item. When you do, you'll get a free sex swing and free shipping. You just enter the code RISK at the checkout. That's the code RISK, R-I-S-K, at adamandeve.com. Get 50% off just about any item. A free sex swing. Have you ever had sex in a swing? It's very, very, very fun and hot and sexy and gives you all sorts of different kinds of mobility, and I highly recommend it. And you get free shipping on the entire order. So that's risk is the code at adamandeve.com. And I have to give a big shout out now to Oscar Flores. Thank you so much. Oscar Flores is one of our $25 or up Patreon patrons. If you go to patreon.com slash risk, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash risk, you can become a part of the community that's contributing to the show, the people who are helping us keep risk running. Some people give $5 a month, $10 a month, $25 a month, whatever it is, it means the world to us. It helps us, uh, you know, keep the tour dates going and the workshops going and all of the coaching that we do of the storytellers. And, you know, there's a lot of people that pour their hearts and souls into making this show something. It's a very, very small, independent organization here. And the help that we get from our fans is just 
absolutely essential to our continuing. Plus, there's all sorts of wonderful perks and prizes at our Patreon page. There's new content. We're going to start putting up one or two or maybe even three bonus stories every month, uh, you know, that you can't hear on the regular free podcast there on the Patreon page. And there's always videos and songs and little just outtakes and stuff that we post there. So it's really fun to become part of that community and kind of get a look behind the scenes. Okay, so that is patreon.com slash risk. Go there, become a patron of ours, and help us keep this running. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is mr scruff behind me now we're calling this week's episode tangled these are three stories of people they're all about sex and romance situations that just got a little more complicated than the storyteller thought things would get. Oh my gosh, folks, I am in Denver, Colorado right now. I'm in a hotel room in Denver, Colorado. Jeff Barr, the editor of the show, is sitting in a chair across the room. Oh my goodness gracious me. The show that we did in Denver was just spectacular. We had a wonderful show here in Denver. But the next day, just hanging out in Denver with Jeff, I had an experience that is definitely going to be a story. I had one of the most traumatic, and uh, I'm very, very grateful to be doing okay today, because yesterday I was going through something. A story will soon come. Say hello to everyone, Jeff. Uh, Yeah, see, see what a mistake it is. To let the other ones talk. <laughs> All right, in a little bit, we are going to hear from Reed Mahalko. My good friend Reed Mahalko is a sex educator based out of San Francisco. You really should check out his site, readaboutsex.com. R E I D A about sex.com. But before that, We're going to hear from Sovereign Sire. This will be Sovereign's maybe third time on the show. You can find her at S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-S-Y-R-E dot net. These are complicatedly spelled websites, folks. Uh, So here she is now. This is Sovereign Sire at the Risk Live show at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Here she is now with a story we call... Sunset of Dicks. (laughs) 
Hi. How are you guys doing? Good, yeah. Uh, is anyone offended by sex? No? Okay, good. We're good. That's because there's no way to like make this story not about sex. Um, this is my election night story. Uh, I, trigger warning, I'm mentioning Donald Trump and sex in the same sentence. So you've been warned. It's, So, like, I'm going to assume probably like a lot of you in this room, I didn't get the president I wanted. Is that fair? Am I reading the crowd fairly? Like, okay. I'm just assuming that people that want to come hear stories and care about other, like, the human condition probably didn't vote for Trump. Uh, just, just a guess. So I'm sitting there, election night happens, you know. I, I, I had had a feeling that it was going to go the way it was going to go for a minute. But there was something about like the moment that it happened where it was just like, are you fucking kidding me? What? And I got really emotional. Like I feel a little embarrassed even telling this story because I want to be so hardcore. Like I want to be so cool that it's like I didn't, I mean, whatever, I'm cynical. No, it went right over the weird crackled cynical part of my brain, like right into the, like, the seaweed of my soul. I was like, what? <laughs> I got very emotional. Like, I, like I, was, I was upset. Like, I was really upset. I surprised myself at how upset I was because I don't think I feel upset very often. Like, not in that way where I'm, like, on the verge of tears over something that's not immediately, like, personal. But there I was. And I felt really powerless. And that was the biggest thing, was I felt scared. I felt powerless. I didn't know what to do. I didn't feel like I could do anything, but it felt like things were about to get really shitty for women and for, uh, like, everybody. But, uh, so I decided to go to work. I get to work from home because I don't, I don't have a real job. Um, <laughs> I've never actually had a real job. Um, so I used to be a porn star, and I'm not saying that to brag, I'm just saying that to explain the next part of this story. So because I had that job for five years, which is not a real job, I was contracted by a camming company to basically drive traffic to the site. So they paid me like a salary. And then I would go sit on cam for an hour or two a week. And just by sheer name value, I would draw in traffic. So this was actually the most empowering job I've ever had because I don't, if you guys don't, so camming works like this. Normally a girl that's probably like 18 or 19 puts on a lot of makeup and really cute lingerie and she sits on a cam and then there's like a chat room of guys she can't see but they can see her and then they have this big negotiation about what she'll do for very tiny sums of money called tokens. This is how the system works. So why I found this job really empowering is because I didn't have to do any of that shit. All I have to do is just sit on cam and B. But what I really like about this job is that I get to sit on cam and I get to tell men no. <laughs> and I was feeling really powerless and I wanted to feel very powerful. So I took my tear-stained face, my sports bra, my sweatpants with the hole in the crotch. I turned on my computer and I let them just come into that chat room. And uh, I, I mean, I really love this job. Like, you into weird sex, baby? What do you, what's your favorite position? I don't know, missionary? <laughs> you want to see my dick, baby? No, no, I don't. You know what? No one does. 
What's like the weirdest thing you've ever done? Um, love someone. <laughs> pretty weird and irrational. <laughs> but highly rewarding if you give it a chance. So I'm doing this job and I'm starting to feel good. Like, these motherfuckers. Look at them just begging, you know. Baby, like, let me, we, show me, show me your nipple for a token. Uh, sir, a token is 0.01 cents. I, no. And there's the thing is because, you know, Trump really to me represented like every shitty boss that a girl has ever had that was just a blowhard that said all kinds of fucked up sexist shit to her and never in his life imagined that he was doing anything wrong, right? And so this job in a weird way is super empowering because of the circumstances under which I get to have the job, which is that I get to say no all the time and it's fun. Right? And guys get very desperate, they get very angry, and they can't do anything about it because I'm in my living room. And you, you like, block. <laughs> like, I can ban you from the site. Like, I have full discretionary power. I'm like, God, over your boner. <laughs> like, you're never coming back. Well, in the midst of my fun, my little cat and mouse game, a boy comes into my chat room that is also on this cam site. So this cam site is not just girls. There are also men that cam. They, you know, just masturbate and things like that for audiences, usually gay men, right? So, so this guy that comes into my room, and I can see, like, the way he comes in the chat room, I can tell that he is a fellow model on the site. And he comes into my room, and he says, in, like, private chat, he's like, so, uh... I'm a boy cam girl, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'm over in my chat room, and I'm masturbating for uh, these guys, uh, but I've been watching your cam feed and looking at you to get turned on, and I, was, I would really love it if I could see your tits. And I was like, no. <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, the guys in my room really like to keep me happy. And uh, what if I sent some of them over here into your room to give you like huge amounts of tips? Then would you, you know, take your top off? I was like, maybe. <laughs> How much? So, so like a minute later, a dude pops in and like tips me three hundred dollars. So in five minutes, I've just made three hundred dollars. So, uh, like any cam girl, I know that where there's some money, there's probably more money. And I like money. I really want money. So I, okay. So I take my shirt off. And immediately these other guys from his room also come into my room. So now it's a bunch of gay guys and then a bunch of freeloaders, right? And these gay guys, are like, they're like... Like, oh my God, girl, you have the perfect, your tits are so fucking perfect. I'm, 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 I'm adding the gay voice. I'm doing that. Like, I'm, this is what I'm hearing. I'm only, they're not talking to me. They're typing. But they're using both hands, so they're more articulate. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so they're like, oh my God, your breasts are perfect. You're such a pretty girl. Oh my God, like, this is so cute. Like, we just want to help Ben get off and da da da. Like, all this, and I'm just like, I'm starting like, I'm, I'm like, I'm starting to like have a good time. You know, like, I'm and, um, and then Ben, this, this is the cam boy's name, Ben comes in, he's like, I'd really love to see you like, take your bottoms off. Uh, if they tip you more money, will you, will you do that? And I was like, can I just, oh, I haven't shaved, can I just like, move the whole of this sweatpants over and you can just see the business? And, <laughs> and then, 
girl, you are so beautiful. They start like tipping more and I, like, now I'm up to like $800, right? It's like, it's maybe been eight minutes, $800. So I take my sweatpants off, right? And, and it's a, a group of gay men going, oh my God, you have the most beautiful vagina. Oh my God. You are so pretty. Your ass is perfect. Your boobs are so perfect. You have the per- you're so pretty. You look like Angelina Jolie. Oh my God. Like it's go- and I'm like starting to like feel excited. I have just been given a lot of money by a man and they're just showering me with compliments. And like I'm starting to feel confident. Like I'm starting to like work towards it. Like I'm doing it. Like, like I'm trying to turn on this pack of gay men. Like, yes, yes, yeah. Like, and they're just, and they're just like applauding. And somewhere in the middle of all this, my brain is like, fuck you guys. Even here, the wage gap, even here. <laughs> like, it's, it's like right back, there's like this weird money Ouroboros where it's like even on a campsite, the boy is making more money on the dollar. Like, oh, but I also like money. So he, <laughs> he said... If I, they tip you more money, will you come into my room and will you watch my feed? So I want you to watch me pleasuring myself. And at this point, I was like, uh-huh, yep. <laughs> no problem. I feel like I'm Beyonce. Like, I just wrote Lemonade this morning by myself. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, like, complete 360 turnaround. Like, I am, like, my pockets have been lined. I have been, like, my self-esteem has been fully restored. I am, like, at full sale. So I go in there. I'm like, fuck it. I'm into it. I like Ben. <laughs> so I go into the room, and all I can see on the screen is just his penis. And I don't know if you've ever seen, like, um, a sunset, or, uh, you know, like, w- waves crashing on the beach, or, like, a cathedral. Uh, but uh, this was the sunset of dicks. <laughs> it was perfect. It size, shape, like like everything about this penis was perfect. I and part of it was because I could see nothing it was attached to. <laughs> uh, it was so perfect, and I was actually found myself turned on. Like I may have been the first woman in the history of dick pics to have been aroused by the sight of a disembodied penis. But I was already fantasizing about it. I was dressing it up in a tuxedo. We were getting married. Like, like the things I could do with this, the things we could do together. Like it was, oh. And, uh, and in the midst of all of this glory, where I'm like, you know, I've been completely taken out of, of my previous misery. And then he goes, do you want to see me suck my own dick? And I said what uh, every person should say when asked that question. Yeah. Yeah, I would would love to see you suck your own dick. And he did. He laid back, kicked his legs over his head, and started to suck his own dick. And in that moment, as I'm sitting there, like, tear-stained face, (laughs) holy sweatpants and sports were on the floor, in my living room, on my laptop computer with a webcam that is taking me somewhere across the country where some man is sucking his own dick for my pleasure 
while I've just been paid like nearly a thousand dollars by a group of gay men that are telling me how beautiful and sexual and wonderful my vagina is. While all of this is going on, I think to myself, I may not have the president I want, but I definitely have the president that I deserve. <laughs> That's my election night story. Okay, you ready for a super personal question? Okay. Did you ever injure your neck trying to suck your own dick? No. But that doesn't mean I didn't try. That, <laughs> yeah. I fucking had one day in high school where I wore a neck brace. Oh my god! <laughs> you did not! I did, man! I did! It was the first time I ever, like, genuinely hurt my neck was fucking trying to make that magic happen. <laughs> and, uh, I'm there in, like, just trigonometry class just thinking to myself, like, god damn it. I'm, I'm so stupid. I'll never try that again. I tried two weeks later, I hurt myself again. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, of course! Oh my god! Because you're so fucking tantalizingly close! <laughs> if you eliminated I, your ribs, you'd I be able to I feel like it. every guy must try that at one point of in their life, right? Of course! Yeah, okay, good, good. Of course. That makes you feel better. So I was a Manhattan bartender, bartending in, in New York City after I left college and really starting to enjoy the privilege of being a bartender in Manhattan in the mid-90s, which for me was just getting to meet a lot of different people. You know, I was very gregarious and extroverted as a bartender and was always introducing people to other people at the bar and just, it was always a party when Reed was there. And I was also at that point enjoying and exploring a lot of one night stands and people who I would jokingly refer to as consecutive one-night stands. And then, you know, by the third consecutive one-night stand, then maybe you would be calling each other fuck buddies or at least have each other's phone numbers. You know, taking somebody home at the bar was very different than you calling them up for a booty call. Like, that was, that was a much, much more serious relationship that we were having as one-night standers. In those times, I would fall in love with people and date them and be monogamous and kind of ditch all the people I was hooking up with and was starting to realize that being monogamous while I was good at it wasn't making me happy because I was still attracted to people and wanted to continue sleeping with my friends or my fuck buddies and so it was like this well hey how about we open up the relationship which never really went super well eventually I would have this epiphany that I need to be dating people and being non-monogamous because I wanted to have a uh, spin the bottle party for my 29th birthday and we had this amazing spin the bottle party which was a room filled with a lot of my lovers, my, my one night stand hookup fuck buddies. It was just a great party and that was when I was like, oh, I need to be really open about this with everybody and conscious about it because I want more of this. I want to be able to make out with a bunch of people and not feel guilty or have people mad at me for it. Julia met me when I was in my slutty phase and knew me from my acting classes. Like we were both kind of on the same page about having an open relationship. 
our rules back then was to be upfront, not to lie with each other, like be honest and be safe. We didn't really have a lot of other rules, mostly because I think we didn't know what other rules we could have. Like this was, you know, in the mid '90s, even though there were historically been lots of people doing non-monogamy consciously throughout the eons. There weren't a lot of books. Like, The Ethical Slut was really the only book that we had back then. And we knew that we didn't know things, and so we were willing to kind of make mistakes while we went. That was a huge relationship for me and amazing, and we learned so much, and, and we tried lots of different threesomes and had a lot of those threesomes crash and burn, but we stuck it through. We are like, okay, so that was a learning opportunity. We know not to do X, Y, and Z next time. You know, like, if you leave the room, I'm not going to continue fucking our friend. Unless you tell me it's okay for us to continue, I'm going to look to you, but if you just leave without telling me anything, I'm going to assume that we should stop. I'm not just going to keep fucking our friend for 20, 30 minutes until I realize there's probably a problem and I should go find you. So like we had a lot of learning curve mistakes, but we were aware enough to realize these were learning curves and we still were deeply in love. For other reasons, about a year and a half later, our relationship would end and it would be a very tumultuous, horrible, emotional, metal, twisted and smoldering in the wreckage. Um, and it was really sad that it ended so badly. And a couple of months later, she reached out to me and said, hey, I'm going to these meetings and they're helping me a lot. It's called Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous and I'm not saying that you're a sex addict. I think you might get a lot out of these meetings so you should go to them. And then she hung up. And she's a brilliant woman and I trusted her a lot for her thinking. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna go check out these meetings. I looked up uh, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous and I found a meeting in New York City and I went to that meeting. It was on the west side in the basement of a church and it was just so depressing going into that meeting and I was so confronted because I didn't have, I didn't have all the knowledge I have now about what self-growth looks like when you're digging up or unearthing reasons why you might be self-medicating. Like when you use substances or experiences to avoid certain things about yourself, which now I'm like, oh, well, self-medication, blah, 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 blah. Like I'll, I'll geek out with you about it. But back then I just didn't know. And when you go into a room with a bunch of people doing that kind of self-work, disemboweling themselves emotionally as a means of working through things and supporting each other like that can be a very particular kind of experience that if you've never had it can only feel uncomfortable because it's a lot of it's a room of people feeling uncomfortable so I was just like freaked out and I'm like oh this is not for me and I just ran in the other direction and ran back to all of my hookup buddies and fucking my brains out and exploring my sexuality Eventually I would move to Los Angeles for acting and I went to some Al-Anon meetings because I was still intrigued with doing some self-work and my mom was an alcoholic and my dad had been a 
pretty serious liar. So I went to Al-Anon and that was very sweet and amazing. And I found this meeting with a bunch of older women and I was the only guy who showed up and I'm, maybe I'm 30 years old at this point and they would just like cook me amazing food on those meeting days. And so I loved it because I was a broke actor and I'm like, shit, like I get home cooked meals with all of this love by a bunch of people who've had similar experiences growing up or being married to alcoholics. And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm fine. Like, yes, this is great. But in the back of my head, I was like, this isn't the thing. Like, I'm not scared. I had this, this kind of belief at the time, which I still do, from my martial arts training from years ago, about this idea of walking towards the gun, which in street combat means if you're trained properly and somebody comes into a room with evil intentions and has a gun, Statistically speaking, if you have the right training, you want the gun touching you because then you know where the gun is, it's within arm's reach, and if you have the right kind of training and a lot of luck, you're in a much better position. Combat training-wise, walk towards the gun. And so I kind of adopted that as a self-growth principle because as I was being slutty in New York City as a bartender, it was challenging for me. And I, you know, I thought it was just because, oh, well, like, I don't... I don't deserve to have all this sex and, and exploration because I really should be monogamous and settling down because that's what true love is. But I knew that like walk towards the gun, like explore my sexuality, even if it's scary, that will lead you to better self-growth. What I didn't realize was part of that piece was it wasn't just that I didn't deserve to have so much sex. There was a deeper hidden thing going on underneath the surface. The Al-Anon meetings, as lovely as they were and as useful as they were for me, I needed to walk towards the gun, so I considered going back to SLAA. So I started going to this SLAA meeting and then attending a couple other ones and starting to learn more about just 12-stepping in general. And Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous based, you know, kind of copy and pasted from Alcoholics Anonymous and that 12-step program and the idea of, you know, if you really want to know if you have a problem with a substance or with an activity, just quit cold turkey for 90 days, which is pretty basic advice in any 12-step program. Yeah, if you're here and you think you have a problem, just quit it for 90 days and you'll know by then if you have a problem. And then eventually I realized like, you know what, walk towards the gun. Like the scariest thing to do right now is to quit cold turkey and this was also in the era of this, the famous Seinfeld episode of you know being master of your own domain which means no masturbation so I was like you know what if I'm going to do this no sex with anybody no masturbation and no orgasms and so I just quit cold turkey called up all my fuck buddies and I was like hey this is what I'm doing you know I think I'm ready I'm going to do this thing and every one of them dropped my number every, they're like okay good luck bye and I never heard from them With the exception of two really good friends and lovers of mine, whom we will call Sherry and Grace, they were like, yep, okay, whatever you need. Do you need us to come to a meeting with you? Like, do you, can, do you want to just come over and cook you dinner? Like, what do you need? And those are the only two people who stuck by me. And so I started going down the rabbit hole of taking a look at, like, why was I having all this sex? 
why did I have all these people's phone numbers that I would just scroll through to try to see who was available for a hookup. And I was reading a lot of SLAA literature and, and AA literature, and there's a really great book called Drinking, A Love Story. It was a brilliant book on just a woman's relationship with alcohol. And as I read it, it brought up a lot of things about my relationship with my mom, who was the alcoholic drinker in my family. But at the same time, I was like, oh my God, like, this is just me, but rather than booze, it's fucking. And that was very shocking of like, holy shit, like my entire life up to that point had been kind of unintentionally designed by my subconscious to camouflage this huge gaping hole of self-loathing that I had in my chest that I would just throw what it meant that other people would sleep with me. Like that must mean I'm lovable. And everything just kind of led back to the, you can't trust yourself. You're using sex as a means of trying to tell yourself that you're lovable in that situation. Then me having open relationships is just another way of getting those needs met and just giving it a label. I had flown back to New York to do some acting work and Grace had lent me her apartment to stay in while I was in town. Uh, she was out of town. This was about maybe a month and a half, maybe two months into my celibacy. And I'd been out drinking uh, with a good friend the night before and I had a, like a epic hangover. And I just remember getting into her apartment, which felt so much like a sanctuary for me because this was one of my friends who didn't ditch me. And I just had a complete meltdown of just couldn't push my loathing aside and it just all floated up to the top. And I just like had this like trying to like vomit up this hairball of ugliness about what I thought and felt about myself. And I remember breaking down and just like crawling into her bathtub and just lying there in a fetal position, just sobbing and sobbing. And like, it felt like it would never end this well of just hate and self-loathing is really the best word, just loathing myself. And I really got in touch with how unlovable I felt and believed that I was. And it was so clear now that I had just been using sex to try to prove to myself that I was lovable. There was a lot of desperation that I mistakenly labeled as passion. My mom and dad's relationship was amazing in the early years. You know, my brothers and I would catch them making out in the kitchen, cuddling on the couch all the time. But my mom and dad's inability to communicate their wants and needs and desires and to work through their upsets, their inability would start to really kind of create all this emotional scar tissue in their relationship, kind of like death by paper cuts. And my mom would turn to alcohol to try to cope with it. And my dad was that generation where he thought, well, if I bring home more money, then that will fix it because money makes people happy. So he became a workaholic and, th and that just made it worse. And my mom, when she would be drunk and when she wasn't passed out, that's when she was verbally abusive. 
And I was the one in the family who just kind of didn't keep his head down. And so we would get into these huge fights. She'd basically tell me that I was, I was good for nothing. I was, you know, a worthless son of a bitch, just like your father. Like I can still hear her voice because like one of my insecurity voices is my mom. And you know, like I know now that they were doing the best that they could, but those things, those words and that messaging came at a point in my life where it was really able to sink in deep and get a good foothold. But what I'd never really confronted before was how much I believed everything she said and internalized it. So what showed up in those moments of me just not being able to hide anymore how much I hated myself was the turning point for going through the, the dark woods or whatever metaphor you have and starting to get to the other side of it. You know, you, you think it's never gonna end because like in those moments when you're that emotionally present, time plays funny tricks on you. Like it's either gone in a, in a heartbeat or it just feels like it's gonna be an eternity and that bathtub was definitely in an eternity moment and an eternity of feeling morose and just hating myself, hating myself. And also feeling not just that moment, but like all the years that pent up thoughts about myself and how awkward and insecure I was as a fat fourth and fifth and third grader and being, you know, my dad was the, the head coach for the Pop Warner football team, the Pelham Razorbacks in New Hampshire and like being too heavy to play on the teams, like not being good enough because I was broken. And when I could make the weight limit, I had to play with guys who were two or three years older. So I felt even more left out because I didn't get the jokes and I wasn't their age and I didn't belong. And so not belonging meant that I, I was unlovable. So it was just like the perfect storm to bake this kid who would grow up to just try to figure out how to fit in, and then how to be loved. Turning the corner and starting to then get through that and have rooms where I could talk about my experience, because now I was sharing my story in the 12-step programs in SLAA and getting a lot of positive feedback from people like, oh my goodness, I went through something like that too, and here was what it was like for me. And, you know, people believing in me and my two friends cheering me on and holding space for me and just telling me that I was lovable. And Sherry, uh, God bless, was like, hey, um, you know, I'm keeping track. And you're like, you're almost at 90 days. And I was hor I'm still horrible at keeping track of anything. Um, so I'm like, really? Like, I'm coming towards the end of it? And she's like, yeah. She goes, I was just kind of wondering if, um, has anyone called Shotgun on re-divergenizing you? Can I call Shotgun? And I was like, oh my goodness. That's the sweetest thing anyone's ever said. You know, because all my, I lost so many people that I thought were my friends. And now to have somebody, you know, who stood by me by the whole thing, a fuck buddy of mine being like, hey, like when you're ready to come back in the game, like I went first dibs. Like that just somehow made me feel completely special. And also my friend Grace was like, I'm here for you. Let me know how I can support. And what was so fraught for me was I wanted to sleep with both of them. Like I wanted them both to de-virginize me, but in the program back in the 90s, there was no context for healthy promiscuity. 
because if you were a sex and love addict, then the healthiest way to help the most amount of people from a 12-step perspective is you have to draw a really firm line. So in Alcoholics Anonymous, you will never touch alcohol again. Like that's how you help the most amount of people who might have a drinking problem the quickest and the most powerfully. That's the line. With sex and love addicts, it's not healthy to say you will never have sex or have a relationship ever again. So the next click up on the dial is monogamy. And you will only have one sexual partner or one intimate partner at a time. And that is healthy. To do anything other than that or to look at porn or whatever your acting out thing that you had identified in the program, like to do any of those things is relapse. And so now I was all of a sudden trying to figure out like when I'm done my celibacy, like what do I do? Like I can't go back to the old way of doing things because that was clearly not healthy. And now I had a whole new relationship with my self-loathing and was starting to fill that gaping hole with ways that I could love myself. And seeing like how so much of my hatred was really my mom and dad's anger that just, you know, kind of stuck in me and how I internalized that. And so as I had the tools now to start cleaning all that up, which was really yucky at first, because it was kind of like cleaning up all the crap at the bottom of the pool, all the water gets murky and murky does not feel good. But, you know, the people in the program assured me, like, you just keep cleaning the pool, Reed, keep cleaning the pool, keep cleaning the pool because the water will get clear. It just feels like it's never going to get there. So now it was starting to get clear and I could feel it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like I love myself. Like I, I'm having more esteem for myself. Now, if I'm coming out of my celibacy stint and I was the master of my domain, like what can I do? And I have these two people that I love dearly who've been with me and all I want to do is express myself sensually and erotically with them. But the program says I can't because that would be relapsing. And it was at that point where I chose from an integrity perspective to you know, lose the group in order to explore what was healthy for me from a non-monogamy perspective. And that was super scary because I had learned to deeply mistrust myself because I had built this elaborate system to camouflage that I was using sex to fill my own self-esteem. But if I've filled that gaping hole of self-loathing with love, now who am I? I passed 90 days and I told Sherry like, hey, you know, I'm still not feeling ready. So I'm just gonna keep going and I'll let you know, like it should shift at some point. Because of the interesting thing is when you do celibacy, it's kind of like when you fast for the first time ever, you just realize, oh my God, I think about food in the background all the time. And when I went into the program and I did the celibacy, it was like, holy shit, like I am thinking about sex and hooking up all the time. It's like a program that was running in the background. I just saw how much of my life was about that. And after 90 days, I'm like, you know, I'm just, I'm still not, I'm not ready to come back in the game yet. So I'll, I'll let you know. But I felt like I had a, uh, a way of feeling into when it would be healthy for me. But I was also struggling with this dichotomy of how can I be non-monogamous and still be in the program? And what I came to was I had to leave the program. 
and about 111 days and something like that, it was, I woke up one morning and I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. And I called up Sherry and I'm like, I, I think I'm ready. And we were, now we were living on two different coasts. I was back in New York and she's like, okay, I'll buy a plane ticket. And I like burst into tears. I'm like, you're gonna buy a plane ticket to come out and fuck me? And she's like, yeah, why wouldn't I do that? And I was like, I, I, oh, that's so romantic, nice, friends, thanks. And so she got dibs on penis vagina sex. And then my other friend, I told her what was going on and so-and-so called dibs. And we thought that was very comical and funny. And I told her all of my fear about coming back into it and my dilemma of non-monogamy inside of Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. And so we decided that I would, you know, we would cuddle and make out and I would go down on her, but she wouldn't do anything to me. And cuddling is is one of my favorite things. Um, And going down on her was amazing. And it's the first and only time I ever came while giving head with no one touching me. And I was like, oh, what the fuck was that? And then, you know, the next day, Sherry arrives, flies in, takes my virginity and virginity as a sex geek is a convoluted problematic idea of virginity anything but like you know re-divirginizing me and now that also coincided with me leaving the program sleeping with two people still questioning if I'm being healthy or not and really good friends of mine at the time who were not lovers of mine so they, they didn't ditch me when I went through my 12-step program they were there for me But they were like, Reed, we're getting married. We're going on our honeymoon to Italy and we want you to come with us. I'm like, what? And they had said, you know, everybody was, you know, doing their their wedding registry and it was like, well, what do you guys want for your wedding? And they're like, really, we wish we could spend our honeymoon with you. And their group of friends were very out of the box, creative thinkers. And they're like, well, you can. And the bride and the groom were like, what do you, what do you mean? They're like, well, you're going to Italy we found out that there's a castle we could all chip in on and rent for a week. And that became like, we're going to Italy, everybody, like chip in, we're gonna, we're gonna rent the castle, we're gonna spend a week with the bride and the groom and then they'll spend the second week of their honeymoon alone. We'll give them their time alone, but we're going to Italy. I get there castle like a fucking cat not like a tiny castle it was like a castle you know on the hillside in the country of Italy wine fields and and olive groves everywhere all these amazing people because I didn't know everybody I knew the bride and groom and I knew a couple of people by face not by name but they're all there hot amazing young vivacious creative folk some of the, the New York creative elite and, you know, and here's little me, fresh from my virginity, you know, fast. So the first night is like this big dinner, and then we retire to the ballroom, because every castle has to have a ballroom. Somebody brought a stereo with them, and it's just dance party, and just a celebration of love, and this couple's commitment, because they were recently married, so this is their honeymoon and they're best friends and we're all meeting each other and they're, you know, all their friends are amazing and there's just all this celebration of commitment and friendship and community. It's just parties late into the night 
and then people start, you know, going up the big marble staircase to their rooms, and then I'm left downstairs with these two amazing women who have been friends for a long time. Um, we can call them Susan and Sandra. They're like, hey. And I'm like, hey. And they're like, we would like to have a threesome with you. And I'm like, oh boy. And so in my now new fashion, I'm like, so this is the deal. Like I just came off of 114 days of no sex, no orgasms. I'm recently divergenized. I just came out of Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Like I want to say yes, but I don't know if it's healthy for me to say yes. Which of course is like exactly how you get two amazing women into bed, right? Like you get like dresses just come flying off when you say that. And they're like, yeah, we know. If you feel like this is a good move for you, like we're not doing this because you just came out of some Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Like we're doing this because we really like who you are as a human being. And we've always been attracted to each other, but it just never felt right. And there's something about you that feels right tonight. And so we just wanted you to know that we were yes to that. You know, and I'm a big mushball anyway, but I'm like all like teary eyed, like, um, uh, and in my head, I'm just like, please let this be healthy. Please let this be healthy. Like, I need to know what to do. Like, what do I do? And in that moment, it was, was really interesting was, oh, what's the scariest choice you can make right now? What's the version of walking to the gun? Like the walking towards the gun is to say yes. So I said yes. And even when I think about it now and slow down enough to really remember, and it's so funny, like it's so poignant and deep and it's also fucking hysterically funny. Here I am worried about if I'm doing the right thing for my soul while I have these amazingly awesome, attractive, vivacious women like peeling off their celebratory you know first night partying in Italy on a hillside in a fucking marble ballroom with dork columns in a fucking castle and we're all like on the floor and they're taking my clothes off and all I'm doing you know like there's that part of me that's watching this being like this is so hot and then there's this part of me that's like, oh my God, please let this be the right choice. Please let this be the right choice. Please let this be the right choice. And they were just present with me the whole time. And the irony of like, oh, you haven't, you haven't had a threesome until you're fucking this woman doggy style that you've never had sex with before. And she's eating out her gorgeous friend for the first time. And she's never done that before. And while you're fucking her and, and all three of you are getting really close to simultaneously climaxing, dude, you're just bawling your eyes out. And I'm not talking like just tears, but like the, and the fucking snot coming off my face while I'm just like, I'm like, ooh, please let this be the right choice. And that was the beginning of an amazing week in Italy. Um, I highly recommend going to Italy if you have the privilege of going, but the beginning of me turning the next 
corner of my life, which was like, how, how do you have responsible promiscuity in a healthy way? And we never, we don't really have those role models or those tips and tricks as a culture. To date, there are a lot of important relationships and, and moments in my life. And certainly, you know, now, like, you know, with my sex education career and, and being kind of a role model for a lot of different things. Um, like those four people, and, and also the bride and the groom who brought me to Italy, like, I don't know that they know how formative and important they are in who I am today. You know, I, I don't go to 12-step meetings anymore. Um, I hear through the grapevine that in SLAA and other 12-step programs around sex and, and intimacy, there's now a context for non-monogamy and what that looks like, healthy non-monogamy, either whether it's BDSM and kink or poly or swinging. Um, but it wasn't there when I was in those rooms. And I don't know. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for that program, which means the train wreck of a breakup I had with Julia and those other six people. And I still don't know some days if I'm doing it right, but I'm pretty sure this is healthy. <laughs> um, or it's at least healthier in a way that never was possible back, you know, when I just turned 30. This is Risk. This is The Wombats behind me now. And we just heard from Reed Mahalko. You can find him at readaboutsex.com. That's R-E-I-D, aboutsex.com. Reed is a phenomenal sex and relationship instructor. 
uh, he teaches classes on how to handle non-monogamous relationships, monogamous relationships, all of the issues around communication and parameters and jealousy and health and consent and negotiation. Reed once taught me this communication activity to try with a partner that kind of changed my life. Uh, so he is a very, very valuable person to get to know if you're interested in exploring some of that very important stuff more in your own life. Now, before Reed, we heard a little something we call Dick Suckin' Stish. It's a couple of guys playing a video game, talking about sucking dick, and some children's music behind them, so that's what that was. Now, we were going to record a new Stamps.com song this weekend, but instead I was busy having the mother of all bad mushroom trips yesterday, so no Stamps.com song for you, people. But I will let you know that Stamps.com helps you save time and money with which you can grow your business. You can avoid the hassle of going to the post office and mail everything from postcards to envelopes to packages domestic or international. It's convenient, it's easy, it's reliable. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. They make it easy. They send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll help you decide the best class of mail. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage and the digital scale, Without long-term commitments, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Enter RISK! Thanks, Jeff. Our final story on this week's episode is from Christina Carberry. She told this remarkable story at our recent live show in Minneapolis. It was quite a doozy. It was really something working on the story with Christina because <laughs> there was so much to it that we really had to boil it down. Um, my goodness, how complex some relationships can get. Here she is now. This is Christina Carberry live at the Risk Show in Minneapolis with a story we call We Need to Talk. So on my first date with Nick, he was wearing a pale yellow polo shirt with his ID badge from 3M where he worked as an engineer clipped to the pocket, which I thought was so dorky. And when he sat down, he shook my hand and I thought, again, super dorky, right? Pretty soon after that, we started bonding and treating random knowledge, like how we'd both spend a lot of time memorizing the list of the largest metropolitan statistical areas in the country. <laughs> 
his Tinder profile had really interested me because it said he had several board games that took in excess of six hours to complete. And he had a dog who he said, well, if you have a medium-sized dog, we'll get along swimmingly. Our dogs, however, probably will not. So I'm like, all right, this guy is nerdy and he has a dog. This is perfect. I'd been through a few rough years before I met him. A couple years before, I'd been broken up with on my birthday, my 24th birthday. A few months after that, I got run over by a car. And I had a number of impacts from that. I had a traumatic brain injury, which, uh, you know, I had some cognitive deficits for a while that had improved by the time I met Nick, but I also had increased my anxiety, and I had some chronic pain that I'm still dealing with. And then two months to the day after I got run over by a car, my father died, and my mom died when I was 15, and I don't have any siblings, so he was my last, like, family member. So things were rough. (laughs) You know, I spent this whole time just being really depressed and really feeling like vulnerable and wanting some stability, which was new for me. I'd never been the sort of person who was vulnerable and like, I just really wanted a relationship, you know? And when I was younger, I always thought, well, at some point, if I meet somebody that I really get along with, you know, and we get into a relationship, that's great. But it wasn't a priority until now when I just wanted the stability of like someone that I could rely on. And so meeting Nick felt great, and I couldn't believe that life could be that good. I felt so happy to be with him. He was smart and so good-looking, you know, tall, conventionally handsome face, but a goofy mustache that kind of indicated that he was a little bit nerdy and some more counterculture tendencies, you know. Um, (laughs) I just felt like my life could start over and it could be good again. And so uh, we'd been dating for a couple months when the 4th of July was coming up, and he said he needed to break things off with me. And he said, well, just cards on the table. I have severe anxiety and panic attacks, and it always intensifies when I get into a relationship. And he told me about his first girlfriend who had cheated on him. And he said, well, you know, she cheated on me twice with the same boy. It broke my heart. And he put his hand to his chest when he said this. And I felt drawn to him in this moment, this look of raw vulnerability on his face combined with how physically attracted I was to him. You know, and I just wanted to help. And after all the drama that I had been through with my accident and my father's death, it was nice feeling like the one that I wasn't the one in the relationship with issues. And I've dated so many men who should have been in therapy and probably never will be. And he was in therapy and willing to discuss it with me. So it felt really good. So I mustered all the calmness I had and said, well, I think we can be good together. And he goes, well, if anyone is suited to deal with my issues, I guess it's you. And I left that conversation feeling like we were even better matched than I had thought before, right? We'd both been through issues, and we were working through it, and we were going to be good together. But everything wasn't perfect. He is still a proud libertarian. <laughs> and we never went to his place, you know. But I knew that he had a skittish dog, and his female roommate was he wasn't consistently getting along with. And he was really nervous for me to meet his friends, but I also understood that He had this anxiety, and it intensified it, and he'd been in so many bad relationships. Nick was always very upset that I couldn't have an orgasm very easily. So there was one night we went out for dinner, and I felt like, okay, I think if I work myself up a little bit, I can have one. So I did, and it worked, 
and I had an orgasm, and then he had an orgasm, which he couldn't do until I did, and after that, everything was amazing, and we started having amazing sex, and at the same time, our relationship grew closer in in a lot of ways, too. He started, we started spending more time together, he got to know my friends very well, I gave him keys to my apartment, and he kept beer at my place. (laughs) He would always tell me that some of his exes still had feelings for him, like his former roommate, who still had feelings for him, and his high school girlfriend, the one who cheated on him, had recently messaged him asking to get drinks, and he would always say, well, you know, I don't know, I mean, I'm willing to do it, but she just broke my heart so much, I don't know if I can handle it. We'd been dating for a few months when randomly we were out to dinner one night and he goes, oh, you know, well, when I was a sperm donor, I was like, wait, I interrupted him. I'm like, wait, hold on, what? He goes, oh, no, when I was a sperm donor, have I never told you about that? (laughs) And I said, no. So he told me about how when he was just after college, he was a sperm donor and he goes, well, I got removed from the donor pool because too many women wanted my sperm. And it made sense to me, you know, he's good looking and tall and very intelligent, so that made sense, right? And occasionally I would comment about us having kids at some point in the future and he'd go, well, my sperm is off the market. (laughs) And I had this persistent vision of our lives in the future where I'm working for the governor and he's higher up at 3M, and we host this revolving door of sperm donor children because they can contact him as soon as they turn 18. (laughs) You know, and while we were dating, he had a lot of issues that happened for him. His grandfather and his childhood dog had both died, and there were several other things that happened, and it took a really big toll on his mental health. Coupled with his anxiety, he was dealing with some depression, and After we'd been dealing with that for a few months, I suggested that we go to couples counseling. And we were both complicated people with traumatic backstories, so it just made sense to me that we would go to counseling and work this out together. So Nick was paying $125 a week for us to see these counselors, and it was two counselors who worked together, a man and a woman. And he opened up so much in this counseling. It meant so much to me. He would talk about how when he was young, his parents would be doing drugs. He'd say, my mom was dropping acid, dad would be snorting blow in the bathroom, and my sister and I would just be sitting on the floor, not sure what to do. There was one moment when I really shut down. It was usually him who had trouble opening up, but our female therapist asked us, where do you see this relationship going? What do you think is the direction of your relationship? And I said, well... I hesitated for a moment because I didn't want to freak him out with his anxiety about relationships, right? And say, like, marriage and babies, meh. I I didn't want to lie either, so I just kind of shut down. And he just took my hand and said, well, no, Christina, come on, tell them what you were saying to me last week. You were making plans for us. When he did that, I felt instantly comfortable, and I was just like, well, yeah, I don't see any way that we won't be together for a very long time. And our female therapist commented to him and said, That was a very nice moment, Nick. Christina was the one shutting down, and you we saw you moving closer to her, being sympathetic with her, and and getting her to open up, and that was really nice. Soon after, he found out he'd be laid off from his job at 3M, 
And he was interviewing for a job based in Switzerland, which is libertarian paradise, so he was very excited. Uh, One day he was like, well, you know, it's not settled yet, and he was kind of apprehensive, but I wanted to talk about it. And he goes, well, I would want you to come. I didn't want to push too much. I said, well, can I answer now? And he goes, yes. And I said, well, I would come with you, even if it means I have to leave my grad program. I would come with you. I I love you. I want to be with you. So we started talking about moving to Switzerland, and I knew his depression was taking a toll on him with his layoff, but I also knew that we could overcome it. We'd done so much work together in therapy, and we'd been dating for a year at that point. I knew it was going to be okay. It was a Tuesday, our day for couples counseling, and he met me outside of my building at work, as usual, and I could sense that something was wrong when I walked up. And he goes, we need to talk. And I had that familiar sinking feeling in my stomach. So I just said, what? What is it? Say it faster. Tell me what it is. I hate the suspense of waiting for bad news. And he goes, I have to break things off with you. And he'd done this before, even though it had been a while. We'd made so much progress since then, and we'd, our relationship had progressed so much since that point, but still, I had prepared what I would say if he ever brought up the prospect of breaking up with me again. And I just said, no, come on, Nick, you're not going to feel this way forever. He doesn't look at me, and he just goes, no, I haven't been completely honest with you. I've been seeing someone else. But still, you know, I assume that he met some girl at a bar or something, and he let it go too far. So I said, who? He goes, my old roommate. But still, I could see how she was his ex-girlfriend. They still saw each other a lot. They were still friends. I could see how you could easily fall back into sleeping with an ex of yours. And so I go, for how long? And he goes, the entire time. I felt this familiar, sinking feeling as my stomach hardened. And I'm the sort of person who always wants to know everything. I want to know what someone is thinking. I want to have full information. So I tried to get him to come talk about it with me, and he refused at first. And he just goes, no, there's nothing between us. There's nothing here. And those words hit me more than anything else he could say. I mean, after a year and a half together, after all the work we'd done together in counseling, it's like those words hit me in the chest over and over again. Nothing here. Nothing between us. Nothing. He eventually agreed, and we went to the lake. We had been on our way to couples counseling, so I had to call them and cancel our appointment. So I called our female counselor, and I just said, well, Nick and I are breaking up right now because he's been dating his ex-girlfriend the whole time, so we're not coming in today. (laughs) (laughs) And he did not look at me during this conversation, but he just kept saying, just tell them to bill me. Tell them to bill me for the canceled session. Like, they can bill me. It was this hot summer day, the sun was beating down on us, and I slowly pieced things together, and I realized that all the women he told me he dated in the interim between the two of them breaking up and when he and I started dating, those were all women he dated while he was with her. Uh, He told me he was living with his parents, 45 minutes outside of town. He was living two miles from me in Uptown, same neighborhood. And when we would spend weekends together, she just thought he was out of town for work. And he had detailed conversations that he had with his individual therapist 
about our relationship. And I said, well, did she know that you were dating both of us? And he goes, well, I just kind of combined the two of you into one person. And I also found out that his high school girlfriend, the one who he said had cheated on him, never cheated. That was all a lie to make himself sympathetic and to excuse some of his actions. And when she messaged him again, asking to get drinks, he went. And then he started dating her again, too, while he was with me and while he was with his fiance. So even in coming clean, he wasn't completely honest with me because I did not realize that he was also engaged. So I went home drunk at 2 a.m. after going out with my friends and found their wedding website. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The Nod.com, Nick and Jennifer, September 2016. My heart started beating out of my chest. You know, here was this man that I was in love with who just this morning I thought I was going to be spending my life with, who was so afraid for me to meet his friends, so afraid of commitment, I couldn't even hang out with them. Here he was publicly set to marry someone else with all these anecdotes and photos of their relationship on the website. And there was a line on the website that said, well, this is a funeral for our single lives. So I reached out to Jennifer as soon as I could, which proved... difficult because he had logged into her accounts and blocked me from her Facebook and her LinkedIn profiles. But I eventually got in touch with her, and I expected some solidarity, right? Like, I'm a feminist. This guy's an asshole. Like, I expected some sort of solidarity, but that's not what happened. She still married him last September. And he told me it was really easy for him to compartmentalize everything because she and I have such different personalities. So when he was with me, he was with me. And when he was with her, he was with her. And it was just totally different. He also said that he felt some superiority because I'd had such a shitty life that it made him feel better about himself. And I have to believe that he loved me in some way. I have to because... Nobody can keep this up for that long. Like, he's not that good. He's not that good at faking emotions. But I know that I'll never know, and not just because he won't be honest with me, but because he doesn't even know himself. And I know, I know I dodged a bullet. That's what everybody says. But it doesn't feel like that. It feels like I got really close to this elusive thing that so many of us search for, a real, genuine connection, a real relationship, and it was all a lie. And I'll never really know what was real.
is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Modest Mouse behind me now, and we just heard from Christina Carberry. Folks, Risk has a lot of live shows coming up, and we hope you make it out. On May 24th, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On June 9th, we're in Portland, Oregon. June 10th, Seattle, Washington. And June 11th, Vancouver. Okay, so we're still taking pictures for all three of those shows. June 9th, in Portland, Oregon, the theme is hype. June 10th, in Seattle, Washington, the theme is destructive. June 11th, in Vancouver, the theme is monster. Then on June 17th, we're in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. We're back in the bootleg every month, once a month, and so the next one there is June 17th. On July 1st, we're in North Adams, Massachusetts at the Mass Mocha. The theme that night is revolting, so we're still taking pictures for that as well. July 8th, we're in Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat. The theme that night is one of a kind, still taking pictures there. July 15th, we're in Philly at the World Cafe Live. The theme that night is Revelation, still taking pictures there. There is one in September in Salt Lake City. The theme that night is unexpected. It's September 9th. September 9th in Salt Lake. The theme is unexpected. Now, how do you pitches for those shows? You go to risk-show.com slash submissions. If you live in or around any of those towns, we want to hear your stories. We help people workshop their stories and get them ready to share on stage, even if you've never done that sort of thing before. And we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. I do one-on-one training over Skype. We have video courses that you can download and take in your own time. We do corporate workshops. We've done workshops for all kinds of clients like Google and Citibank and Pfizer and uh, GE. It's incredibly useful to learn how to reframe things in a narrative way, how to take any fact and figure, how to take anything you want to communicate and reframe it as a narrative in a more emotional and human way. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Other than that, look us up on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. Comment about the episodes at the iTunes comments pages or on the table of content pages, the listen pages, for each of our individual episodes at risk-show.com. And be sure to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash risk where you can become a patron and help us keep this running. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Take a risk! Jesus God, Jeff.
stars in the southern sky. Southward as you go. There is moonlight and moss in the trees. Down the seven bridges road. Now I have loved you like a baby. And I have loved you in a tame way. And I have loved you. Thanks, Jeff.